This is Bonjour Chai, the Vote Yay or Nay edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Lana Zakon in Montreal and Davis Klar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we are talking elections, American election, Israeli elections, all the elections. Gil Troy is here to tell us why we should care about these and what we should be looking for when the elections happen next week or the week after. But first, David, I know a while ago I asked you about your Jewish beer event, then I asked you if you were a Jew for cheeses. I need to know, mm-hmm. are you a Jew for Yeezus? Who who would be a Jew for Yeezus going on right now? What 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 has been happening? This is like all the anti-Semitism rolled up into one. It's been a crazy week with the anti-Semites. I just want to clarify for people who don't understand this joke that they're talking about Kanye West. That's all I have to say. Oh, we haven't even mentioned the his artist name. formerly exactly. known as Kanye West. So so he was known as Kanye West. He's now officially known as Ye. And, and, but also has an album named Yeezus. There was an album called that where he did refer to himself in this sort of way. So, uh, yeah. What's amazing is, is that the, all of these Jews were quick to pounce on, you know, him as soon as it happened and to call for Adidas to boycott and call for all these companies to Balenciaga to boycott. And they all did. Um, but these things take time, right? You can't just sever ties with an artist right away. And, uh, they're happy that it's happening, but I really want to, I, I was very moved and, and very touched by a, a tweet that uh this uh chase rishon who is a um uh, so he goes by the he tweets under the name uh manishtana um he is a uh, he is a black jewish rabbi who lives in brooklyn fascinating guy um and he says look like looks like yay is really facing the backlash of his anti-semitism which is good but all of y'all should have dropped him when he made dangerous comments about black people now i'm, I'm quoting there that's not me that's not my accent um i'm not trying to put something on but but i think that i've been thinking this and saying this for a long time that in the Jewish community, we are uh, very quick to defend ourselves. Uh, and yet when there's a lot of danger happening to other minority groups, we don't take heed of that and say, well, it doesn't really affect me. When Kanye West was saying a lot of anti-Black stuff, he was not asked to be canceled, not by not by African-American um, leadership com- uh, and communities and organizations, and not by the Jewish community. And yet as soon as he says one thing, um, which causes everything else to to happen, that's when everybody wants to pounce on him. No, I, 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 think, I think that's the... Maybe it's the past notion that it's like are the Jewish community and the federations don't stand up when there is racism outside our community. That's not what I see. I see on social media all the time from the Calgary Jewish Federation, from the federations, from the Jewish community sort of saying, we stand with our brothers and sisters in this community. What we are observing is wrong. We need to stand united. I see this more and more. I, I guess I don't. Maybe the Calgary community should be um, commended for their excellence there. But I think that he feels like nobody, uh, that the Jewish community is all going off on Kanye, rightfully so. Um, but they're not necessarily looking inwards at when any of the institutionalized racism and any of the the fact that they're not, um, that there's there's a lot of deep, you know, issues within the community itself. All right. Well, let's go to our interview with Gil Troy right after our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. 
Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. There are two elections coming up shortly that, while not actually in Canada, will likely have repercussions for Canadian Jews. Next week, Israel is set to hold their fifth election in just over two and a half years, their previous ones all failing to create stable governments. And the week after that, the U.S. has their midterm elections, which are often a good barometer of the pulse of the nation. With us to talk about these is Gil Troy. I can't think of a better person than him to speak to both of these issues, as he is both a professor and scholar of U.S. history in the American presidency, as well as a leading thinker and writer on Zionism today. Professor Troy, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. You're too kind. So let's start with uh, Israel. How is this election different from all the other elections? Or is it even? Well, it's, it's a great question, you know, because you've seen uh, Israelis love democracy so much that we've had one election after another election after another election after another election. This is the fifth election uh, in about two years. And on the one hand, it, fa- it feels depressingly similar. And I think we all feel like we're living through a, a form of Groundhog Day. On the other hand, this election is different in a number of ways. Number one, we've just had this fascinating, I don't care where you stand politically, but fascinating year plus long experiment in a wall-to-wall right-left Israeli and Arab coalition. And uh, the underlying headline of that, of course, was it's the first time that we haven't had one of these elections with Bibi Netanyahu as prime minister. He's been in opposition for the last year, year and a half. So we start with the fact that we have Yair Lapid as prime minister. We had Naftali Bennett as prime minister for about a year. And so Israelis have had a chance to taste something different. To my surprise, again, not politically, but analytically, it didn't seem to move the needle all that much. Uh, What's really interesting is how when you look at the polls, the anti-Bibi and pro-Bibi forces still seem pretty aligned. And you would think after a year, people would either go, oh my goodness, these people were crazy, we need to get Bibi back. Or they would say, wow, we got a budget. We had some stability, we had some diversity. We can, there is life after Bibi, but no, it seemed, and what's the underlying message here? That it's very tribal. So we're seeing similarity and difference. Another dimension I think I need to point out is that whereas most of the parties are more or less playing the same game they've been playing year after year after year, election after election after election, the surprise of the election, uh, for better and for worse, has been the, um, the religious Zionist party which uh, is now polling at about 14, 13, 14 seats. And that is the most controversial party in many ways. It's the party with, uh, led by Bezalel Smotrich and, uh, uh, and Itamar Ben-Gvir. And the question of whether they are bigots, how anti-Arab they are, whether they're simply patriots or uh, discriminatory um, is, is one of the major issues in the election. And whereas that's been sort of on the outskirts of the previous four rounds, this time partially because Bibi Netanyahu brought them in, partially because in May 2021, there were a series of riots in Lod, in Akko, in other mixed cities uh, of Israelis and Jews uh, at, at the height of the uh, latest confrontation with the Hamas, and that was deeply traumatic to many Israelis. Uh, all of a sudden, now they're a big factor. So if anything, I think they're the, they're the, they're the biggest change that we've seen um, from the previous four elections. If we can go back just a few steps, do you want to lay out a bit of uh, who the other main competitors are this year? Sure. So there's the easy way and the hard way. <laughs> the easy way is it really is all about Bibi. 
Um, Bibi Netanyahu, um, very charismatic uh, prime minister, has been in office uh, for over 10 years, um, has now the record more than David Ben-Gurion uh, for serving as the prime minister in the, long, the longest time. He also uh, has joined the much smaller club with uh, Ehud Olmert of a prime minister who's been indicted, but this time a prime minister who was indicted and didn't resign. And so what you've actually seen, if we talk about just, if we reduce it all to pro-BB and anti-BB, is today in the anti-BB block, whereas BB always likes to say anybody who disagrees with him is a leftist and is a traitor, there are now very strong voices like Avigdor Lieberman and Gidon Saar, who were very much from the right, who have actually served in previous governments with Netanyahu, who simply said, you know what, he's passed his due date, um, his leadership has, has, has become way too self-promoting and self-involved, his corruption is way too disturbing to me, I'm leaving. So it's not, people like to de- define Israel as left-right, it's not. Um, this election, like the previous four elections, has really been pro-BB and anti-BB. So at the simplest level, that's what it's about. Now let's do a deeper dive. And uh, what you have in the anti-BB camp is a block uh, led by Yesh Atid, which means there was a future. And the leader of that is Yair Lapid. Yair Lapid is currently the prime minister. He did uh, an extraordinary thing a year and a half ago, which is that even though at the time he was the leader of that anti-BB block with the most number of votes, he turned to Naftali Bennett, who only had six votes, and said, you're going to be prime minister. Now, that is one of the most controversial moves in Israeli history, in recent Israeli history. Those who are anti-BB said, wow, what a guy. He could have been the king. And he said, no, no, I'm going to defer. Let's make a coalition really that's centrist and I need you. And so I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to give up. And uh, now, obviously, because the coalition fell apart, he's been uh, prime minister. Others say it is the most anti-democratic putsch in Israeli history. How could Naftali Bennett only had six votes be considered to be the leader. Now, of course, we know that no Israeli prime minister has ever had, uh, has ever le- led a party which won 61 seats. And he's always, uh, he and she, Golden Ear, uh, has always been forced to have a coalition. So I, I just put that out. Um, and that's the, that's the real issue around Yish Atid and Yair Lapid's party. Did they do a very gracious thing or did they undermine Israeli democracy? They're the ones who are polling now at about 27 votes. Uh, 27 uh, seats, we should say. There are 120 seats in the Knesset. The golden number they're all looking for is 61, a majority of the Knesset. Well, I'm just curious because this is the first time in Israeli history that a cover a government has brought in an Arab political party to the coalition. Is that correct? Correct. That you had Arab you had Arab ministers before uh, serving in the Labour Party and in, 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 and and serving through merits, but you've never had a situation where the core of the coalition and actually the, the key votes that brought the coalition up to that magic number of 61, at least for a while, uh, came from what's called Ra'am, which is the, ironically enough, the uh, Islamic party, the Islamist party, uh, the Islamist unity party in Israel. And ultimately, they were led um, by a politician, Abbas, who said, you know what? I have my ideology. I have my platform. But I, my job here is to deliver for my people. I'm a pragmatist. And the most important thing I can do is to join the coalition and try to get a government that's willing to deliver some more budget to the Arab sector and also fight crime in the Arab sector and acknowledge that 20% of Israel is uh, Israeli Arab. What was the reaction when that happened? How has it been in the past year with the majority Jewish Israeli population viewing it for the first time that you had a, a partner from that, um, from that party? 
great question. And again, it was it, it, it's it's been this same split. It really is a kind of fascinating thing where depending, you tell me if you're voting pro BB and anti BB, and I can tell you what you think about Yair Lapid's move. I can tell you what you think about the Arabs in this coalition. Uh, we should point out again historically, not in a partisan way, that Netanyahu himself in the last round was the first one, the first Israeli Jew to reach out to that same party and offer to bring them in. But they wouldn't go in with him. When they went in with Lapid and uh, Benny Gantz and the others and, and Naftali Bennett, whoa, from the pro-BB camp, they said, what are you talking about? They're traitors. How dare you do this? And on and on and on. Now, I know that had those four votes gone to the BB side, the, I'm sure the people on the left would have figured out maybe a, a slightly less bigoted way, but uh, a, another way to say, what are you talking about? They're an anti-Zionist party. So we have to, you know, there's a lot of flim-flammery going on. But unfortunately, and this also gets to the the, the opening thing I was saying about uh, the Ben Gvirism uh, in this election. Unfortunately, while the pro the the, the pro Lapid camp, the pro Bennett camp, was extremely proud of the fact that we had this wall to wall coalition, extremely proud of the fact that this coalition not only had a budget but had a budget which started fighting crime in the Arab sector, boosting education in the Arab sector. Unfortunately, within the anti Lapid camp within the pro BB camp, there's been a bit of a backlash. And just as there was a backlash to the May 2021 riots, uh, there has been a bit of a backlash to the fact that you had this clearly anti Zionist party um, in the coalition. And uh, I have no problem calling them anti Zionist, even as I say that I actually thought it was good that they were in the coalition, but we have to you know, live with all the contradictions and live with all the messiness. So, still with our, uh, with our tour, so we have this kind of push me, pull you anti BB coalition which includes uh, Yair Lapid, the Islamist Arab Party, the party of Benny Gantz, which has, which has renamed itself the National Unity Party, trying to say that we're the ones who are really the centrists. And he's been defense minister and has brought a certain kind of stability and continuity because he served both under Bibi Netanyahu and under Bennett and under Lapid. Um, and uh, they're polling currently at about 11. And then also within their camp, uh, are voices of the uh, the Russians, uh, the Russian immigrants led by Avigdor Lieberman, Yisrael Baitenu, which is polling at around six. Uh, Gidon Saar, who was a Likudnik and very much an ally of Bibi and broke over the corruption uh, investigation, has now been folded into the Gantz National Unity Party. And completing that coalition, and really you see how far right to left it is, is you have the two liberal parties, um, Labor and Merits, and the big issue there recently has been Lapid is making a big push and saying, wait a minute, if we're going to have negotiations, I need to have the biggest voice possible. I need as many votes as possible for my party. And because of Israel's crazy election system where the parties get fragmented, but they have to pass a certain threshold, they have to get at least 3.25% of the vote. What's happening now is that both labor and merits, the two left-wing parties, which chose not to, to to unite. I should, I should rephrase it because Meretz wanted to unite and it was Labor uh, under Merav Mikhail who said, no, we're not going to unite. We have our own history. We have our own ideology. We're not as far left as you. So as a result, the two smaller parties, uh, as of today's polls, uh, are at four mandates, which means they would pass the threshold. But if either of them goes just a little bit under, Yair Lapid may be shooting himself in the foot. He may be losing four essential votes he needs for his coalition, even if he gains, let's say, two or three for his party. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is.
So the big takeaway is that the anti-BB forces are united by their sense that Israel needs to move on after this leader who's brought stale leadership, after this leader who has been corrupt, after this leader who has been increasingly demagogic and um, and wouldn't even acknowledge the legitimacy of this um, of this coalition. Time to move on. That's the fundamental anti-BB move. On the BB side, on the pro-BB side, the pro-Netanyahu side, you have Likud, which is still polling as the largest party. The latest poll shows about 31 votes. But that's only halfway there. They need 61 votes to have a majority in the Knesset. And who are their partners? The ultra-Orthodox, the various Haredi parties, the uh, very religious Sephardim, uh, the Shas party, um, and uh, the big um, question mark in this election, which is this religious Zionist party. And just to show how crazy things have gotten this week, lo and behold, there was a leak of a tape of Bitsalel Smotrich, who is the head of the religious Zionist party, trashing Bibi Netanyahu, who he would have to go in with a coalition, um, saying that Bibi Netanyahu is a liar of liars because he claims that he wasn't going to go in with an Arab party, and we know that a year and a half ago he was willing to. And so what's funny is that it's almost like a right-winger's critique of Bibi from the left. And if that sounds confusing, getting the theme, it's because it is. So to, to, to go further on that, um, it seems like that to me is the, is the lens by which one, we, one looks at the, the rest of the election in the sense that Ben-Gvir Smotrich is um, really gaining a lot of this power where they were very much on the sidelines beforehand. And a lot of it isn't because of their issue, uh, the issues that they stand for, meaning that there's not nearly as many people that are going to vote for them that actually believe in their platform. And yet, because they are seen as uh, pragmatically the people that will get the things that they do want in, um, they're going to be voted. It seems, I mean, it's similar to what's going on globally, right? You started with the Tea Party and you now have, uh, you know, a uh, Republican uh, Party in the U.S. where uh, a lot of people aren't necessarily saying that they stand for what's going with the people behind it, but they are willing to, to vote um, these people in because they are going to get their agenda across. And everybody is using uh, everybody else for their own means without necessarily looking at the platform. And yet, um, the upshot of what's going to happen is that uh, so much of religious life will go and not only get upended back on based on what was happening over the past year, but we'll go back even further to what, um, and even more right-wing and even more religious than what um, used to be, and that that might be deeply problematic for diaspora Jews. Um, can you speak a little bit more about that and, and what's going on there? Because to me, that, as a Canadian Jew, is one of the most troubling aspects of what's going on. Uh, look, there, there, there's a cautionary tale here, of course, and you know, let's be Canadian for a second. Every single person who, in future elections, um, or in the last election, voted for Pierre Trudeau, didn't necessarily approve of the way he approached the vaccination issue or the COVID issue or the, I'm sorry, Justin Trudeau, sorry, <laughs> that was my Montrealism, uh, uh, or, or the, um, or, or the, uh, or, or the truckers in Ottawa, right? So, you know, just because you just because I vote for a particular uh, leader or the party, it doesn't mean I buy into everything. That's one uh, warning. The second warning I would say to my, uh, diaspora brothers and sisters is this. You know, we just saw in the United States what I call the Trump opportunity, which is that for the four years that Donald Trump was in power, 70% of the American Jewish community was furious with Donald Trump, hated Donald Trump, denounced Donald Trump. I couldn't call one of my friends and say, what's the weather without hearing 
uh, about the latest tweet by Donald Trump. And yet very few of them moved to Israel or, you know, what's going on in Montreal and elsewhere. Very few of them moved to Canada, right? They stayed. What's the Trump opportunity? The Trump opportunity was to realize that if something goes wrong in the country that I love or the country that I live in, I'm not giving up, but I'm doubling down. And the speed with which certain diaspora Jews are willing to say, oh, well, if Israel does this, then I will do that. If Israel votes for Smotrich or Ben Gvir, then I will wash my hands of Israel is to me very troubling. As someone who is deeply committed to Israel and as someone I'll put it on the table who is deeply disturbed by the rhetoric that comes from Ben Gvir um, and, and his camp, the day after the election, I will continue my efforts to fight Ben Gvirism, whether or not they're in the majority. And I need more liberal voices, more voices from the center, more voices from the right to say, this is a red line we will not cross. So that's the uh, meta-analysis there. Let me just throw in one other dimension, which is because uh, you, 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 you zeroed on something which I've seen a number of articles about, and I actually wrote a little bit about this week in my column, which is take the, the right-wing voter of conscience, and particularly the religious Zionist voter, who says, I'm not a Ben Gvirite. I'm not a bigot who says, I don't believe in corruption. I think Bibi is tired. They're orphaned. Where are they going to go? There's a party led by Ayala Sheked, which tries to be the conscience of religious Zionism, but there's a very, very good chance that her party won't even pass that Ahuza Hasimah, that threshold. Benny Gantz from the anti-Bibi camp, from the center, partially um, renamed his National Unity Party as a National Unity Party, partially reached out to Gidon Sar. I know I'm repeating myself on purpose, but I'm trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together um, from, from the Likud, because he's trying to say, hey, wait a minute, you orphaned right-wingers, you orphaned religious Zionists, you have a home with me. Because I come from the religious Zionist camp, even though now I look secular, I still put on tefillin, he lets people know that he, he still speaks religious Zionism. He has a number of people in his coalition, including Chili Troper, who comes from the the, the, the bosom of religious Zionism in, uh, in in Jerusalem. And he's trying to say, if you want somebody who can work with ultra-Orthodox, work with the right, but not work with bigots and not work with corrupt people, to look what looks like voting left, but it actually is just sort of anti-Bibi and join me. So what you're seeing is in Israel, an attempt to say, yeah, we see that there are certain people who are confused. Let's find pathways for them. And we have to make sure that in the diaspora, People don't immediately go to, oh, I'm washing my hands of uh, Israel, but no, I'm rolling up my sleeves to make what's important to me really come true. So why, why do you think that so many Israelis have taken to Bibi, whether they're pro or against the fact that he's taken up so much space in people's minds? What, what do you feel um, does he symbolize for the state? To speak American for a moment, when Franklin Roosevelt had been president uh, and elected was four terms, had been president for over 12 and a half years, and died suddenly. The next day, Harry Truman, who's become the president, has a meeting with uh, a series of aides. And one of them writes in his diaries, he said, I walked into the room, and I kept on saying to myself, before I walked into the room, call him Mr. President, call him Mr. President, call him Mr. President. And I walked in and said, how you doing, Harry? And in those first couple of weeks, when people called Harry Truman, President Truman, people said, he's not the president. And so the first part of my answer is that Bibi Netanyahu is a larger-than-life character. He's a historic figure. Love him or hate him, he's a, he's a historic figure. He has so dominated Israeli politics for 30 years, since the 1980s, uh, let alone for 
the so many voters' lifetimes um, and 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 certainly their historic memories that it's very hard to give up on Bibi. And for all, and I certainly have criticisms of Bibi. For all my criticisms of Netanyahu, the thing that he has been strongest on has been a the economy and b um, security issues. And I have to say, during all the conflicts that he that he ran, all the issues that have emerged during you know bouts of terrorism and, and and fights with with Gaza, he has been extremely careful, extremely responsible. I know many many anti BB voters who have vit, voted Gantz, Gantz, Lapid, Gantz. You know they they're voting BB against BB again and again. But when God forbid there's been a terrorist attack or in the most recent May 2021 uh, in, in in the previous conflicts, they all said I'd sleep well at night with my kids in the army knowing BB's in charge. So he symbolizes a kind of continuity of the state. He symbolizes a certain kind of security and stability and familiarity. To my uh, horror, in recent years, the BB that has emerged is no longer a conservative who conserves. Part of the reason why I'm so confused these days, and when we get to American politics, you'll see it, is I don't, I can't navigate a world where progressives don't believe in progress and conservatives don't conserve institutions. And partially because of his own trauma, which is being caught in this very silly series of, of very petty crimes, um, whether he's guilty or not. They're, you know, I, I often say like the crimes he's accused of are, are not suited to the grandeur of Israel. They're petty crimes of taking champagne and, 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 and cigars and gifts. Um, they're petty crimes of manipulations uh, for, for media. Uh, again, whether he's guilty or not is not the point. Um, to fulfill, the he's trying to fulfill BB, uh, trying to fulfill Ben Gurion's promise of, of Israel is not Israel unless we have petty criminals that are Jewish, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. We don't so just need high criminals. We need petty criminals too. <laughs> exactly. Like if you're going to be a criminal, be a be a high criminal. So, but I think that being under the gun has led him to attack the judiciary in a very uh, demagogic. I was going to say Trumpian, very but sure. unpatriotic and and very Trumpian way. And so now you have this. You know, a nationalist who's an anti-nationalist. You have this posed patriot who's an anti-patriot. And that's just extremely confusing um, and extremely annoying. Do, um, do you think that part of it, because the downside of this safety and this um, this comfort that one feels with the person that they've always felt is the one that is the most secure for the country, is that it's very hard to shift one's point of view. And that um, even in the face of much um, that is contrary to what somebody might say, that's not somebody I would ever vote for the individual gets, it's hard for them to dissociate and say, no, I've always voted BB. And I always think that this will always be the right person, even in the face of that, which is a, a transition almost to the to the next side of where we're going to go with American politics. But uh, hold that for a second. But yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's the great historical conundrum of, of this recent coalition, right? Because the coalition, if the coalition proved anything, it proved that there is life after BB. They proved that there's security after BB. They proved that there's prosperity after BB. They proved that there's maturity and stability after BB. And as I said at the beginning, it didn't move a vote. So the people who are addicted to BBism are addicted to a, a certain narrative about, at the end of the day, he's still the grown up in the room. At the end of the day, many of them, and they tell me this, they say, look, when it comes to dealing with Putin, when it comes to dealing with Biden, when it comes to dealing on the world stage, Enkomobu BB, there's nobody like BB. And so they continue to believe that whatever other issues there are, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, we're not voting for his morality. We're not voting for the, um, the model that he and his wife, Sarah, ha have set as a as, 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 as couple of the year. We're voting for 
this kind of stability and con- continuity and we still when we still haven't seen anybody who can fill his shoes. And of course, he's been very effective at that in the Likud. Anyone who potentially looked like a rival, he's cut down. And we know that this is a historic phenomenon where great leaders, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, um, are just not good at cultivating successors because that implicitly means they're cultivating a rival and that they're acknowledging the, their own mortality. Professor Choi, I would just like you for a moment to pull out your, your magical crystal ball and think about the day after the election where there is possibly everyone is trying to vie and bring in different parties, try to together. What happens? Is there going to be a sixth election, a seventh, eventually an eighth and ninth? Are we just going to be stuck in this? It's either all in for BB or against BB? First of all, I always say as a historian, it's hard enough to predict the past. I can't begin to predict the present. And certainly when it comes to Israeli politics. But let, let's put a couple of scenarios on the table. I, I want to introduce your um, listeners to a very important Talmudic concept in an Israeli word called teku. Teku is in Talmud when there's a debate between two people and ultimately they can't resolve it. They just throw up their hands and say teku. And it's not a giving up kind of draw. It's a draw which says, okay, there might be two sides. More and more people are predicting that uh, the day after. That there'll be a teku, that, that, that Yair Lapid will continue as prime minister because BB, the latest polls show BB getting 60, but not 61. And the latest polls show the, um, the anti-BB forces getting 57 and not 61. And so if it's, and, and that's because some of the Arab votes go to parties, Arab parties that simply won't be in either coalition. And so more and more people are saying, we just may be headed for a sixth round. Now, what could be the potential game changer? The real question is how many rounds is the Likud willing to go with Bibi at the helm? At what point will, and I'm not predicting it, I'm just raising the question, at what point will people within the Likud say, hey, wait a minute, Bibi, we tried with one round, we tried with two rounds, we tried with three rounds, we tried with four rounds, we tried with five rounds where we were in opposition for a year, year and a half. We've had enough. Similarly, that could happen with the Haredim, with the ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox say, hey, wait a minute, we've now had enough. We're worried about the stability of the state, not because they care about the state so much, but, but because they want the next budget to, to, um, to help them out. And maybe even in a teku situation, they might say, look, Bibi, we gave you your chance, but we've always, ultra-Orthodox over the years have gone with left-wing parties and right-wing parties. They don't care. They're not involved in the day-to-day politics over the economy, the day-to-day politics over security. They're looking for one thing, budget. And so the two potential game changers that one has to look at the game after the day after, if there's a um, if there's a stalemate, are one what are the internal dynamics within the Likud, and two, um, are the ultra orthodox finally finally getting fed up and simply saying, you know what, we have enough votes because and if you look at the math, right there they have all these wonderful things on Israeli websites where you can play. If you add the um, eight votes of Shas and the seven votes of United Torah Judaism, that's fifteen votes. They go to a Gantz coalition and Lapid, whatever, but all of a sudden you have a new constellation. So those are the two um, scenarios. I'm not predicting them, but those are the things that, are, that you can look for. You're see. way smarter than me on this one, but I have a very hard time imagining that when in the past, when the religious Zionists were going and, and aligning themselves with the left for pragmatic reasons, there was a lot less at stake for what they consider Torah Judaism. Um, you know, the, the, the status of the Kotel, the status of gays, the status of conversions was not nearly as, as, Contentious an issue as it as as it is now, and I cannot imagine um, that religious Zionists, religious Zionists, and or ultra orthodox will ever uh, align themselves on the left um, for that reason alone. But 
maybe maybe I'm wrong. I, again, I'm not predicting. No, no, who, who knows? But think think about it. It, it. Precisely because of that, right? Precisely because they're worried about that. If they have a chance to have a coalition which knocks out Merits and Labor, who are the strongest voices of that, and that's eight, and they bring 15, and all of a sudden they have an ironclad promise of no draft, of boosted budgets, and of no movement on the Kotel and on gays, all of a sudden, now, all of a sudden, Yair Lapid has a lot of problems, right? Can he sign and on? You don't have a left-wing party anymore, though. Right. You don't have right. a left-wing platform. Right. But my, so my, my friends from the left will tell you that uh, calling Yair Lapid a leftist uh, is like calling um, Mitch McConnell uh, a, 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 right, a right-winger. You know, a, a, a centrist. No, it's like they, they're just saying it's not true. Um, or right, a centrist because he's anti-Trump, right? And there's, it's just they, yeah. they're saying that they, he looks he looks left wing because he's to the left of Bibi, but he he's not truly a left winger. And we'll see. Time will tell. So so using that as a as a fulcrum actually just to to transition over to the other side, um, because I think in my mind the way that I've been perceiving it, the uh, the U.S. midterms this time is really yet another referendum on Christian nationalism, um, and how much of that um, is going to be represented, you know, in uh, in right wing politics, even though. The people that are being re- that are representing the Christian nationalism evangelical vote are are really not religious themselves, right? We can just look at Herschel Walker, who just today had yet a second allegation, uh, you know, of something uh, of an abortion, right? So much of it is not about um, the leadership themselves, but what the leadership is willing to promise to the people of of what they want. Um, I don't see that yet transitioning yet to Canada. So first of all, if you can just um, tell me how, how true is that or how true isn't that and um, whether that's what that is going to do to affect politics here, because we are for like, whether we like it or not, you know, upstairs from from this neighbor and uh, it tends to affect us in some way or another. Yeah, my Canadian friends joke that uh, living in Canada over during Trump was like living on the meth, meth lab. On yes, the exactly. That was about to explode. So um, look. Here, here are three confusing parts to the American election. Number one, Tip O'Neill, the great speaker of the House for many years, said all politics is local. So when you look at, let's say, Pennsylvania, when people go into the voting booth, um, those who show up in the voting booth these days, uh, will they be voting for John Fetterman, who, uh, who's, a, who's, a, who's a left winger and, and maybe represents the consensus in the state, or because of his halting performance uh, in the recent debate? because he had a stroke on the eve of the primary win, will they say, you know what? I'm going to go with Dr. Oz, not because I like Trump, not because I like um, the Republican Party today, and I'm going to vote for a Democratic candidate for government, Josh Shapiro, but I'm going to vote against Fetterman because he just doesn't seem fit for office. I'm not, I'm not saying that should happen. I will happen. But all I'm saying is that, that the, the, the Fetterman-Oz Senate race is the best example of personal considerations, potentially dare I use that word, trumping broader considerations. That's one dimension. The second dimension is, yes, I would say that the Republican primaries were that referendum that you were talking about on Christian nationalism. And the Republican primaries, what we saw is that while Trump and the white nationalists didn't run the table, they're here for the long term. They're not going away so quickly. Um, if, uh, if Donald Trump retires from politics tomorrow, which I'm not predicting, Trumpismism and MAGA is not going to disappear. They were enough. They had enough victories. They had enough wins. They had enough momentum from the primaries to show that this is going to be a central issue in the Republican Party. But on Tuesday, the November eighth, there are going to be three other major issues on the ballot. One, Joe Biden. 
Joe Biden is a president who um, is increasingly seen to be weak and debilitated and not at the top of his game by his own party. And if you look at the numbers of Democrats who don't want him to run in 2024, if you look at the number of young Democrats who don't want him to run, it's astonishingly high. That's number one. So Biden and Bidenism is an issue. Two, inflation. What we saw was that over the summer, the Democrats made a big push to make this election about abortion um, after the Dobbs decision, after abortion was declared um, illegal by the, the, the Supreme Court and actually basically sent back to the states. And, and if you look at the polls, there's been sort of like an upside down V, whereas the, there was a surge of focus on abortion, a surge on these kind of cultural issues, a surge for the Democrats, and now we're right back to the biggest issue, which is inflation. I was in the United States last week, and you travel around, and you see those big gasoline signs saying $5.75 a gallon. You don't care about abortion. You don't care about Herschel Walker. You say, hey, I'm voting against inflation. Now, the fact that it's a worldwide phenomenon and that it may not because, uh, be because of Joe Biden, we'll put aside. But that's, that's another issue that's out there. And the third issue, which the Republicans have been playing very, very cleverly, you can see it in New York, where it's a heavily Democratic state, but the uh, New York governor... Um, is now in an extremely tight race, is even playing the issue of crime. And crime, to me, is shorthand for the broader issues around culture, around critical race theory, around wokeism. And so to the extent that the Republicans do well, and we're not predicting, on, uh, on Tuesday, November 8th, they're going to point to Biden, inflation, and crime, oh my, uh, to the extent that they do well on Tuesday, uh, November 8th, the Democrats are going to say Trump, white supremacy, and Christianity, oh my. So uh, part of it is going to be, uh, and, and and those of us who are analysts are going to pick and choose and say, wait a minute, some was personal, um, as in the, the Pennsylvania race, um, some was uh, this phenomenon, some was that phenomenon. So, uh, but, but fundamentally, the real confusing thing is in the United States, you really have 435 individual races for the House of Representatives. You have uh, 34 races for the Senate. And then you have dozens of other gubernatorial, um, mayoral, uh, state legislative offices at, at play. And it's often the media that clumps them all together and gives some kind of overriding plot or theme. So let's talk a bit about how the Jewish community fits into all this. What issues out of the ones you mentioned tend to be the most important for the Jewish community or or not? Because I know that these days, Israel tends to be a big focus for a lot of voters, which could make them single issue voters. So I just want to hear your take on the Jewish angle. So in midterm elections, uh, Israel and foreign policy in general tend to be less of an issue. Uh, although there have been some uh, in, in the primaries, we saw there were some places where this was a flashpoint in, in, in the Democratic primaries. I think the biggest question with the Jewish community is, there, there, there are two big questions in this election. One is the ongoing fact that the overwhelming majority of Jews are liberal, democratic, pro-Biden, and not just anti-Trump, but terrified of Trump. Anti-Trumpism has become a core foundational value for many, many Jews. And it was reinforced by the Dobbs decision, by the, uh, the decision uh, against uh, abortion. That, and, and it's a bundle. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clump of issues. And so fundamentally, the role of the Jewish community in the election has been um, being, let's call them Orthodox Democrats and Orthodox anti-Trumpers who were saying, this is the fight of my lifetime. This is the fight for America in my lifetime, but it really gets to my core Jewish values, my core Jewish identity. Adding to that, and sometimes reinforcing it, but sometimes confusing it, 
is the issue of anti-Semitism. I think anti-Semitism has been a much bigger issue in this campaign underlying it for the, for the Jews than Israel. Um, now, partially, of course, anti-Semitism, when we talk about anti-Semitism on the left, is somewhat connected to anti-Israelism. Um, right now, everybody's obsessed with Yi Kanye West, Kanye West with his um, you know, fulminations. I have to say it's disturbing to see how much airtime his craziness gets and how little airtime the more serious underlying anti-Semitism, Jews being beaten up on the streets of Brooklyn, uh, 359 incidents on campus, which the ADL counted, which um, would show uh, on, on campus a kind of aggressive place where Israel, anti-Israelism, um, anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism meet, um, the, the, the white supremacism that's reflected not by some uh, celebrity of the platform, but by uh, idiots with, a, with the, the, the Twitter megaphone platform. They worry me much more than the rantings of some unstable celebrity. And it's disturbing. It's almost misleading. Um, all of a sudden, the, 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 the Kanye West problem is solved because he's been canceled and then anti-Semitism has been solved. Ain't true. Not happening. Not going away. So let's not be addicted to that. And by the way, that's an important warning for Canada, because if you want to talk about the linkages to the Canadian Jewish community, I think this bringing out of all the demons Come out, come out wherever you are. Left and right may disagree about everything, but they can agree on Jew hatred. Uh, come out, come out wherever you are in the universities, which is supposed to be the most sophisticated corners of the world. And it happens at York University, it happens at McGill University, it happens um, in Canadian universities, or also, you know, out in the in 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 in, in the in the in the farms and the prairies, um, where a small group of people uh, whip themselves into anti-Jewish frenzy. The the fact that it's it's happening and the fact that it's it's being validated um, sometimes by not by the American media, not by the American um, political establishment. Although we should point out how the American media and the political establishment denounces it, we don't live in Europe. But simply by this new grassroots social media megaphone uh, that we all live with, um, that echo chamber is is scary, and that's where the border between the United States and Canada doesn't exist because there is no border in social media, there is no border in hate, and there is no border in demagoguery. Well, we saw that in the the trucker protest where a lot of the ideas were coming from America, and yet we were the flashpoint for it. Um, I, I'm very much uh, caught up in that and sort of seeing the way in which the uh, the current conservative party um, is taking ideas very lightly and cherry picking so that it works from American republicanism. Um, while many Jews are saying, yeah, but Paul Yev is somebody that like stands for my values. Um, and that's what worries me is that that's going to start that that hadn't yet become an issue yet um, in Canada, with the exception, for example, let's say the NDP and the Greens, who were not necessarily going to be major players, you know, in an election, they might swing something a little bit here or there. Um, but we're starting to see the conservative party trying to take um, from the, the Republican playbook um, and and seeing how the Jewish community is going to react to that. And um, I'm seeing in the American community a lot of, you know, I'm curious what you're seeing. Um, what are the, the similarities? What are the differences? How, how often are we seeing, especially in the Orthodox community, um, people willing to forgive or not look at Republican or extreme right-wing um, anti-Semitism in favor of the fact that this is a, a person and a party that really stands for my values. Look, the most worrying thing is that I'm seeing in the Jewish community that we're importing the same hatred, the same inability to talk to one another, the same partisanship that's going on outside. Um, one of the things I actually like about Israel is that in a given week, I speak to left-wingers and right-wingers. Um, I, I, I don't live in a bubble. I 
I, I pray in a minion which has pro BBS and anti BBS, and we'll yell and scream um, at, at, at one another, but we also love one another. And that that ability to love one another when we dis- when we did or disagree with one another is a very Israeli trait, partially because we have enemies and partially because we have a sense of family. And it's something that the Jewish community used to have it is increasingly losing. So, and that's, and I'm seeing that in the Canadian Jewish community and the American Jewish community. Oh, I can't sit with him um, over Rosh Hashanah over Thanksgiving um, because he or she voted this way or that way. The other thing that really makes um, my skin crawl is this silly debate between what's worse, left-wing Jew hatred or right-wing Jew hatred. Jew hatred is Jew hatred is Jew hatred. We have to have zero tolerance for all forms of Jew hatred. And my left-wing friends must police their allies and fight left-wing Jew hatred, meaning progressive hatred in the universities. And my right-wing allies must fight um, Jew hatred uh, in, in, in the Republican Party and the Conservative Party uh, and in the pro-Trumpian forces. And it doesn't work. It's very easy for my right-wing friends to yell and scream about progressive anti-Semitism. Nobody's listening. And it's very easy for my right-wing friends to yell and scream. Uh, but but you've got you've to you've take care of your own house. And we Jews cannot fall into that. So you want to vote for Donald Trump because you're willing to make a deal with the devil because he's pro-Israeli moved, uh, and, and moved the embassy to Jerusalem? Fine, but at least own it. Don't yell and scream at me when I call out Trumpian anti-Semitism. You want to dance with wokeness uh, on an American and Canadian campus? Fine, do it. Be honest that you're a social justice warrior, but don't be dishonest and deny the fact that those are the ones who are now validating a new form of anti-Semitism, which may be less um, aggressive, but it's in the woodwork. And so it might be even more insidious and more long-lasting and more dangerous. So we have to fight anti-Semitism together. The enemy loves to get the Jews fighting amongst one another. And we have to be able to agree to disagree, but also agree to agree. We must agree on the fact that there is zero tolerance for all forms of anti-Semitism. And the fact that we're seeing um, bullying, we've seen a little bit in, in Montreal and Toronto, but much more on the streets of Brooklyn. And many of my left-wing friends are, are excusing it or saying, well, you know, you have to look at the, 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 the economic dynamics. I'm not looking at the economic dynamics. I'm looking at the fact that I, I checked uh, on this. Only one person has been prosecuted um, from dozens of attacks on uh, visible Jews, on, on Jews with black hats or, 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 or an obvious Jewish dress uh, in, 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 the United, in, in, in New York. That is outrageous. That is scandalous. And my left-wing friends, my right-wing friends now have something on which they can agree to agree. And agree to fight. Maybe this is um, uh, going a little bit too off topic. So please rein me back in if you think that this is a, a whole other discussion. But I'm curious about the whole phenomena of Jews in the diaspora uh, being lumped in with whiteness and how that might be affecting the issues that they might be aligning with, like Jews aligning with very left wing groups, for example, as opposed to in Israel, where People are not thinking in those black and white terms, and that might change their focal points of what they care about or what they feel like they need to fight for or that they're not hiding from. Because I I see personally a lot of people who are cloaking their own insecurities with their Judaism by saying, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of a white person, so therefore I want to fight against my people to show that I'm a good Jew. I'm one of the good ones. I, I think this is an essential and quite relevant question because I think it's actually one of the underlying uh, issues going on in Jewish identity today, going on in the Jewish community today, and obviously as a result, going on in the election. It is both a form of what I call cultural imperialism and solipsism, meaning ultimate selfishness. What do I mean? One, 
Cultural imperialism is we take Western terms like religion and nationality and like whiteness and blackness. And we particularly take American terms and American definitions of whiteness and blackness and impose them on the Jewish people. When A, we know that, especially if you've walked around Israel, that there are many Jews who are dark skinned um, and many Jews who are light skinned. We also know that the Palestinian Israeli conflict is a national conflict. It's not a racial conflict because there are many Jews who are dark skinned and many Palestinians who are light skinned. So, A, you're taking these Western terms and imposing them on Jewish terms. And B, I call it solipsism, which is selfishness, because you're taking a mirror image. You're saying, oh, well, things in Israel and things in the Jewish community must be exactly as they are in the United States of America. And we as Canadians, I, I've paid taxes in America, Canada, and Israel, so I can say we wherever I want. Um, we as Canadians should call, should be the ones to call them out and say, hey, don't put Canada through the same racial lens. Don't see Canada in the same racial lens. And don't see Israel in the same racial lens. So that's one dimension of it. The second dimension is absolutely, you know, when I speak to young Jews and they tell me, oh, well, you know, we have white privilege. I go, you know, when my grandfather walked down the streets, um, he didn't look white. Um, his skin might have been lighter than his African-American friends, but he, from the way he dressed to the way he sounded, to the way he carried himself to, he was instantly, and even though he wasn't uh, Dati and didn't have a kippah on his head, he was instant, instantly verifiably Jewish. And to negate all the good work and the hard work that the Jewish community did to get accepted, to become uh, constructive, to contribute to the United States and Canada is to me an act of communal suicide. Um, and what we're basically doing is we're taking the toolbox that we used in Canada and the United States to get ahead and we're neutralizing it and dismantling it. And we're ruining it for the next generation. So I think this is a very important conversation we need to have during the election, because indeed that does sometimes lead people to vote um, uh, for certain candidates and go to certain kind of alliances. But more than that, it's, a, it's, it's the issue we need to have over the next conversation we need to have over the next two, three years, because it really gets to how we see ourselves, how we define ourselves, and how we build ourselves and how we go forward. And we cannot afford to feel guilty about our success. It doesn't mean we should be selfish about our accomplishments, but we cannot afford to be guilty about our success. And we cannot afford to neutralize all the good ideas and ideals that Canada and the United States have represented and have, um, and, and all the good ways in which Canada and the United States have welcomed us and the happy, constructive um, alliance between the Jewish communities of Canada and the United States and their host countries. It's fascinating the their way that you country. frame it, um, because I, I look at it and I sort of see the, um, the one group that tends to be voting on the right, especially in the U.S. and the, with the Republican Party, um, is the group that is the most identifiably as other. Um, within the Jewish community, I'm saying, um, and that, uh, you know, and that uh, if all the people who are uh, othered, right, in in society within the Jewish, within, you know, the United States of America or North America in general, um, it is the Haredi population, it's the ultra-Orthodox population that is identifiably an other the way that you were talking about your grandfather, and yet they are aligning themselves with the people that say we don't want others around. Um, and, and I find that really fascinating, um, more so than the overwhelming majority of people, uh, of Jews who are voting on the left, who are basically trying to align themselves, even though they are the ones that pass the most, to use a, a, an interesting term. Um, and they will go and say, no, I identify as this, even though I identify on the left when it comes to, um, Israel, when it comes to, you know, anti-Zion, I want to separate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism because they, as you said, they're nationalists. They're not, it's not about religion. And those people will overwhelmingly vote 
right, on the one side um, that you would not necessarily imagine, but not nearly as interesting to me as the people who are on the right who are taking religion and placing that above all else um, because they've been told by the evangelical community that this is how um, you are supposed to vote if you are um, religiously conservative, right? This is what it means to be religiously conservative, um, and it's this package of ideas. Um, and, and I find that really fascinating. Right. But, but of course, the, the truth is that Judaism is, is this mix, right? It's this mix of, um, of Mahane and Eida, right? Of, of, of camp and, 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 and congregation. It's a, it's a mix of the nationalist particulars perspective and the universalist vision. Uh, we'll, we'll make the conversation come full circle. The answer to the question, <laughs> the short answer, is that just as we started off by warning people not to say, oh, they voted Ben Gvir, therefore they're voting for bigotry. Um, when you walk into the voting booth, you're juggling. Sometimes you're cringing, but at best you're juggling. And, 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 and you're juggling a whole bunch of balls in the air. And at a certain point, you have to decide. You have to grab one and say, that's the one that I'm going to seize. And so the, the liberal democratic hyper-Zionist, super-Zionist APAC voter, sometimes juggling, says, you know what? I'm going to not seize my pro-Israel ball when I'm voting, because I know fundamentally most Democrats are pro-Israel, and this Democrat may not be, in this particular district, may not be that pro-Israel, but that's not my big concern. My big concern is Trump. My big concern is abortion. My big concern is, um, is Tikkun Olam. My big concern is all these other things. Similarly, when a visibly orthodox Jew walks into a voting booth, and he or she is also doing that juggle, they might say, well, you know, I'm seizing the pro-Israel ball or I'm seizing the religious values ball, or I'm seizing the anti-woke ball. That's what's really the most important thing at this moment. And I'm going to overlook those crazies who are anti-Semitic because they're not really anti-Semitic. I'm going to say that when Donald Trump gets up and yells and screams about you American Jews, um, you know, there's going to be an accounting and you have to, and you have to care more about Israel. I can hear the echoes of anti-Semitism. And again, I wish they were honest enough to acknowledge the echoes of anti-Semitism. But I know what he's really saying. And I say it too. I look at the liberal Jews and say, hey, where are you? I need you to support Israel too. Bibi Netanyahu says the same thing. So when it comes from Donald Trump, they call it anti-Semitic. When, they come from, when it comes from Bibi Netanyahu, they call it obnoxious. So I, I'm not justifying anybody's perspective. All I'm trying to say is that every vote in democracy is, is a mix. Uh, Ed Koch put this brilliantly um, when he was mayor of New York and running for governor. He said, if you agree with me on seven of 12 issues, please vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 of 12 issues, please see a psychiatrist. The notion that every time I walk into the voting booth and I vote one way, I'm buying into the entire bundle um, is dangerous and toxic. And I only wish, in the same way that I only wish that we could learn to sit and break bread and yell and scream at one another, I also only wish that every one of us could learn to say, yeah, you know, I'm a Pennsylvania Democrat, but Fetterman's stroke really worries me. Yeah, I am a pro-Israel Trumpian, but his demagoguery or his assault on democracy or January 6th really bugs me. Even if I'm going to vote for him, at least acknowledge the complexity. The scariest thing about politics today is that people aren't acknowledging the messes and they're reducing things to oversimplifications. And that's when it gets toxic. And that's when I, I then take that oversimplification and decide, you, Ilana, you, David, you, Avi, you're good or bad based on whether you're on, your, you're on my, my team or not. And that's why I can't talk to you. If we could say, you know what, okay, we agree about abortion, but we disagree about Israel or whatever it is, then it's different. And, you know, the fact that liberal Jews can't say thank you to evangelicals about Israel because they're so angry about abortion is disturbing. And again, the fact that pro-Israel Jews can't call out Donald Trump on his excesses 
because he moved the embassy to Jerusalem is is outrageous and scandalous. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't think of a better way to uh, end on uh, than that note. Giltroy, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope that you can uh, be the person to explain to us uh, the Israeli election in four years from now uh, and not sooner. And uh, maybe we'll have you on in two years to explain, to explain the American election again. But thank you. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week. That thing that makes us feel Jewish, Canadianish, all those little ishes over the past week. Uh, what are you thinking about, Alana? I want to give a shout out to a bookstore that is quite known in Montreal, but it was actually my first time there, Bibliophile on Queen Mary. It is a beautiful small bookshop, uh, independent, that is run by a bunch of Jewish people. There is a huge section of Jewish books for kids, for adults of all sorts of topics, fiction, nonfiction. Um, and it was really lovely. They've been going strong for 40 years. And I think uh, if you're in Montreal or you're coming to visit Montreal, you should give it a visit. All right. David, what's your nachas? Friday night, October 28th, is the opening of Theatre Calgary's The Importance of Being Earnest, which I happen to be in. And I want to give a big thank you to our director, Bronwyn Steinberg, who I think has done a wonderful job of bringing this script to life. I'm very grateful for her expertise, her dedication and support throughout our entire rehearsal process. And I really look forward to um, to running this show for the next four weeks. If anyone is in the Calgary area, you can always purchase tickets at theatercalgary.com. And uh, I hope everyone in the cast, uh, I, I give them I give them big males and um, break legs. Yeah, go check out David on stage in Calgary. If you're in Calgary and you're listening to this, go buy him a drink after the show. It's the Bonjour Chai tradition. Um, so this coming Shabbat is Parashat Noach, which we'll mention again in a second. Um, Parashat Noach uh, talks about Noah and the flood. And there's a very famous Midrash um, that, or oh, I just heard this, somebody called Midrash Jewish Torah fanfiction. And that I was like, oh yeah, that, that, that can work. But anyways, um, so there's an interesting Midrash that says uh, that this, after the uh, Noah um, survives the flood, comes out of the, the ark, um, God gives Noah permission to eat meat. But until that point, everybody was vegetarian. And this is the the week in which, uh, you know, we celebrate this. So I had a friend, uh, I've soft called him out in the, in the past, but, uh, and this is not, not necessarily his idea, but this was where I was introduced to this idea. Um, and uh, Jeremy Siegel in Chicago used to have every Shabbat, uh, every Shabbat part Noach Fleischfest, right, or Basar Fest, where every item on the menu, it was a potluck, you would invite all these people from the community and everybody brought something and every item on the menu had to have meat in it from like challah with like pastrami bits in it to a meat a dessert that had meat in it um, to, to whatever, anything that served had to have meat in it. Um, he doesn't do it anymore. We don't do it in Montreal. It's, uh, you know, there's so many other things we have to do, but I, I have fond memories of Fleischfest every year um, in my years in Chicago. Um, and it's a great, interesting way to say, you know, we do eat meat as Jews. We, there are many Jews who are vegetarian and many that aren't, but um, meat is uh, some, often part of our diet and to commemorate the fact that it's actually something that we're given permission to do as opposed to just our right and we take it. Um, he has Fleischfest every year on uh, on Parshat Noach and uh, someday we will, uh, you know, come back to it and maybe we'll have a Fleischfest. We will do a Bonjour Chai Fleischfest sometime um, or not. But uh, Friday night, go make sure that you have all the meats and, uh, you know, do that for you. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending October 29th, Shabbat Parashat Noach. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's probably a mitzvah. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Join author Karen Levine in marking the 20th anniversary of the extraordinary true story behind her beloved children's book, Hannah's Suitcase. You'll hear how the curator of a small Holocaust museum in Japan wound up on an incredible global journey, searching for a young girl named Hannah Brady. Sunday, October 30th at 2 p.m. at Beth Emmett Synagogue in Toronto. To learn more and register for free, visit beby.org slash event slash OCT30.